0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The state legislature is back in action tomorrow, and on the Senate side, there'll be one less Democrat. Senator Sherry John, who represents suburbs including Lakewood and Littleton, just became unaffiliated. Meanwhile, it also recently came out that Ellen Roberts, a former president pro tem of the Senate, left the Republican Party last summer. In becoming unaffiliated, these two joined the largest voting bloc in Colorado, over a million people who aren't members of a party. And welcome to you both. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks, Ryan.
0: Senator John, in announcing your decision, you said, I didn't change, the system changed. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I started in the House in 2001 was my first session. And, you know, we just had a tendency to really pull together, to work together on some really tough issues. Um, you know, we had Ref. C. and it was very bipartisan.
0: This had to do with state spending, mm-hmm. Tabor.
1: That's correct. That's
0: correct. Hugely controversial. And yet there was common ground found, you say.
1: And the common ground was found because it was important to get it done for the state of Colorado, Um, It was not based upon, you know, making one side look good or the other side look look bad or vice versa. It was literally focusing on policy. And what I found, you know, over the last few years, especially the last, you know, three to four years, there seems to be a lot more um, focus on what party should be in control, not what policies we should really look at and get solved for the uh, people in the state of Colorado.
0: Is there an issue that you think illustrates that or a nut the state hasn't been able to crack because of it?
1: Well, I think transportation is a perfect uh, perfect example, and I know um, my good friend Senator Roberts can tell you a lot about that, being in one of the rural areas. Um, every, the focus seems to always be on the Denver area. We have a lot of rural areas that are hurting desperately in the in the transportation arena, and we need to get together and haven't been able to do that. Uh, Ellen, what tipped
0: you over the edge to drop your Republican affiliation?
2: Well, these days I'm uh, back home and I'm in the private sector and I'm working on policies, uh, natural resources policies, so mostly forest health and water issues. And I really didn't want partisan politics to be part of my world and that the people I work with didn't first think of me as a Republican but instead, as more of a problem solver on some of these tough issues,
0: uh, that's interesting. You can't both be a Republican and a problem solver, or at least that 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 uh, um, doesn't project. What What do you mean by that?
2: Well, I think when people hear you belong to a party, they immediately put a matrix of assumptions on you and where you're coming from in terms of how you approach a problem. The value of being unaffiliated is having more freedom, not being as confined by what are perceived either by others or party platforms in terms of your immediate go-to stance.
0: So did you drop party affiliation in general, or was there something specific about the Republican brand these days you distance yourself from? Uh, We're going to hear in a few minutes from a gentleman named Dan Butcher, who says he left the Republican Party specifically because of the president. Does does President Trump have anything to do with this?
2: Well, I would say I was unaffiliated for decades before I got into politics uh, myself and really did see it was a two-party system. The Republican Party is one that the core principles, as listed out, uh, resonated with me. And and I like smaller government, uh, lower tax burden. Etc. cetera. But when you get into the weeds, you start finding out that there's a lot more um, demands in terms of what it is that you supposedly represent. I would say that that's where, as a former unaffiliated person, I yearn to get back to the territory where I could say, uh, this is how I think. I would hope that people would ask me rather than make assumptions. And um, so really returning to unaffiliated is is my comfort zone.
0: Was there something uh, in the Republican platform, perhaps, or uh, assumptions people made about you policy-wise that you're you're grateful to distance yourself from?
2: Well, sure. And I even when I was in office, there were many times that I was told that I was not following the party line. Give me an example. My, and, well, uh, some of the social issues, in particular. Um, I believe in limited government, so I really thought that's kind of more where I would belong uh, on the social issues, and it's not really the turn that the party took. But, um, you know, that's that's the, I think, the juggernaut that Senator John and myself and others at the Capitol would struggle with is to what point are you okay and I always liked Ronald Reagan's, President Reagan's 80-20 uh, percent, that if you agree with people 80 percent of the time, you're probably in the right party. Those are your friends and allies and not 20 percent enemies. But I would agree with Senator John that it's kind of taken a bit of a turn, even at our state capitol, where uh, people are looking for 100 percent or nothing.
0: Senator John, you are term limited. So this is your last year in the Senate. You do hope to caucus with the Democrats. Uh, With your switch, there are 16 Democrats and 18 Republicans in the Colorado Senate. So the the margins are tighter there, certainly than in the Colorado House. Uh, You said in your announcement on Facebook, the system is terribly broken. Um, Isn't it easier, though, to fix a party from the inside as opposed to leaving it? If you think there's a problem with the Democratic Party, why not stay?
1: Well, I have to tell you, I've tried to do that now for about 15 years. Um, I am just really moderate. I'm a business owner, and so I have a different perspective on um, finances and some of those issues than some of my colleagues do. Uh, When you're actually running a business, um, it's a little bit different than, you know, trying to just say what policies you think should work. Um, Some of those policies just don't work. Um, And I am going to caucus by myself. I'm not joining a caucus. I'm not taking sides either way and so i'll just remain independent on my own.
0: So one picture is uh some um unforgiving party leader sort of whipping you about, you know, get in line, uh you're deviating from the plan. Is that what happened? What what did the discomfort look like day in and day out that you're trying to get away from? Let's be a bit more specific.
1: Well, i think Ellen spelled it out very very well. Um it's a matter of the expectations that It needs to be 100% all the time. And I'm not 100% anywhere all the time, except maybe on children's issues and elders.
0: Really? So what what happens if you disagree with the party? What are the consequences if you say, I'm not in lockstep?
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of outside interest groups now, Uh I think, that are playing heavily that didn't used to play on both sides of the aisle. And there's always the threat of, uh, we're not going to be able to fund these campaigns if... This doesn't happen. Um, If we can't get this legislation passed, I just don't know if we're going to be able to fund these campaigns, and that's just not how it should be. So
0: it's not just a function of power within the party, but it's it's some of those outside groups who are perhaps closely aligned.
1: To be very honest with you, I think that has a lot to do with what has happened—the outside groups and a lot of what we call dark money coming in. You know, many times you don't know where that money is coming from, and they really have a lot of pull. We did put a call out on Facebook asking to hear from people
0: who've left a political party. Uh, one response we got was from Joel Terrell of Longmont. He says he disagrees with leaders switching their affiliations after being elected because it could be perceived as disingenuous. Uh, another commenter went further on your own Facebook page, Senator John, uh, beneath your announcements, becoming unaffiliated, quote, I did not vote for an independent. I voted for a Democrat. Would you consider resigning so a Democrat can hold your seat? How do you respond to that?
1: Well, no, actually, my voting will never change. I will continue being independent like I have always voted independent. That's just who I am. Um, I will still be representing the values that I have always represented, that is not going to change at all. So I see no need um, to step down and, you know, have someone else taking my seat. Um, Like I said, I haven't changed. My voting's not going to change. My philosophies aren't going to change and my values aren't going to change.
0: Ellen Roberts, would you have made this decision, uh, hypothetically, obviously, when you were still in office? um, Or do you think it's just a, a totally different proposition?
2: You know, I think each person has to decide for themselves where they're at. And uh, I I would like to say, and I'm sure uh, Senator John would agree, I want to honor everybody who's working at the state capitol, whether they're Republican, Democrat, unaffiliated. It is a tough job. And we are asked to do an awful lot of things on a daily basis in terms of making decisions with a limited amount of information and so those who choose to be in a party, I say have at it. That, that works for them. But there is a tipping point for some of us who are not comfortable in what I felt was confining. Um, but while I was in office, I was willing to uh, work with that. To your point earlier, can you uh, make change from within the party? I think a lot of us who are now unaffiliated thought that would be the case, but it hasn't really opened up in that way. So for me, it fits better today to be unaffiliated.
0: Do you have a sense of how many colleagues secretly
1: want to do what you did? <laughs> I wish I did, but I have to tell you, the very interesting thing is over the years, I cannot tell you how many times a colleague would come to me and say, I wish I had your strength and your guts to, to vote how you just voted on that because you're absolutely right. But I just can't go there Um It would make this entity or that person or whatever angry. And so I have to tell you, I think there's a lot of people that wish that, you know, that sometimes wish that they would have a little more independent voice. And I'm hoping that actually maybe I can help to give strength to those to speak up when they need to speak up. Because we represent everyone. We are not elected just to represent one party. I want to push back on
0: the the culture that you portray at the state capitol, um, one in which party is placed over policy don 't we have proof every year that 's not the case with the passage of the budget, which has to be bipartisan don 't we have proof in the extra money that was found for transportation in the last session isn 't it less dysfunctional than your painting senator john
1: well i 'm not saying the whole thing is dysfunctional of course we have we 've had to, we always have to balance the budget, which is a great thing. Um, And we have to come to some very hard um, decisions to do that. So we do work together a lot on many, many, many issues. Um, It is not completely dysfunctional, and that's not what I'm trying to portray. But I think even when you look at the national level, I mean, I see that kind of stuff trickling down to the state where it's digging in more on party lines.
0: Ellen Roberts, we have about 30 seconds. Is this the... And should it be of the two-party system? And I realize that's a big question and one that, you know, people have been asking for a lot, a long time.
2: I think it's a great question. I'd love to see the future. Um, I hope it opens up the conversations. We've got some big challenges, both at the state and national level, but same old, same old isn't working. So how do we inject new thought, new ideas, and new people? Uh, this may be part of it.
0: I'll say there's an organization in Colorado, it was once called the Centrist Project, now known as Unite Colorado, and just today they're announcing a slate of four candidates, uh, one running for state senate, three running for state house, that... Uh, Are unaffiliated, and their idea is to get more centrists, more unaffiliated folks into government. Uh, Thanks to you both, we heard from Ellen Roberts of Durango, former President Pro Tem of the Senate, and State Senator Sherry John, who represents parts of Lakewood and Wheat Ridge. They both recently left their parties and became unaffiliated. And in light of their decisions, indeed, we asked on the CPR News Facebook page why people leave parties. Here's some of what we heard Giselle Panzi of Durango was a lifelong Democrat and became unaffiliated around the inauguration.
2: A lot of the power now is in the middle, in the people who are able to forge compromise and to negotiate. You know, if you're coming from a rigid position, there's not a lot of wiggle room.
0: Sean Hegemeister of Greeley switched from Democrat to Libertarian.
3: I guess I view it as a, like a teeter-totter. And the parties are moving out further on the plank as they can to get leverage to tilt it in their favor. And I'm kind of standing in the pivot point as they move further away from where I am. And Dan Butcher says he
0: left the GOP after Trump accepted the nomination. He became a libertarian but found that wasn't a good match either. So now he's unaffiliated and says he feels
3: homeless. I mean, we always grew up a political family that participated You know, went to rallies, went to protests, went to every caucus meetings. I feel lost having nothing now. I don't there are no independent voter meetings that I'm aware of. So let's help him
0: out. If there are places unaffiliated voters find community, let us know. Does unaffiliated have to mean unconnected? Email news at CPR dot org. The Me Too movement has reached a critical juncture at the Colorado Capitol. Among those returning to work this week will be Democratic Representative Steve Lebsock. Many of his colleagues want him to resign after multiple allegations of sexual misconduct. But as CPR's Sam Brash reports, Lebsock says he's owed due process.
3: Eleven women have now accused Lebsock of a wide range of misconduct, from unbuttoning a blouse to asking a lobbyist for sex. His most prominent accuser is Democratic State Representative Faith Winter. She says Lebsock tried to get her to leave a bar with him in 2016 and became aggressive when she refused. She went public after hearing she wasn't alone.
1: The other women that were harassed were lobbyists and AIDS, and they did not have the power, and their career was more at risk. And I felt that it was a responsibility to come forward to make sure the behavior stopped.
3: Leipzak originally apologized, but then his tactics changed. He denied the allegations, and then he took a polygraph to contest parts of Winter's story. And in a conversation with me, he stepped it up.
4: Faith Winter actually came on to me at a Colorado House Democratic retreat and asked me if I wanted to sit in a hot tub with her.
3: I'm just curious what you make of him making these allegations against you now.
1: It's a wild misrepresentation.
3: Winter says she invited a wide group of people into that hot tub. Lebsack just happened to be within earshot.
1: He has tried the apology. He's tried the denial. He has tried everything else. And now he's going the next step that bullies do into victim-blaming. I would like it to stop.
3: And state leaders have called on him to step down, but Lebsock insists he's innocent. I think all of your
4: listeners would agree. That it's inappropriate to call for someone's resignation with no due process.
3: Hear that last part?
4: With no due process.
3: Due process. That's become the big question around LebSock's fate. As sexual harassment charges have roiled state houses and the U.S. Congress, some complain due process has been left behind in a rush to judgment. But some of his colleagues aren't ready to wait due process, I believe very much
0: in, and I think that we should get as much information as we can. But when we get as much information as is available, then eventually you have to make a decision.
3: That's Democratic State Representative Matt Gray. He's drafted a resolution to expel Lebsack by a two-thirds vote of the Colorado House. It'd be the first time that's happened since 1915. And he says there's already enough evidence to take that step. The standard for getting fired is not the same thing as the standard for going to jail. Legislative leaders have hired the Employers' Council, a private law firm, to investigate the complaints against LebSOC. But it's unclear when that'll wrap up. And Gray says if it drags on much past the start of the session...
0: Eventually, I would decide that the risk of making these women interact with Representative Lebsock would take over and I think we could have the conversation based on public statements.
3: Lebsack isn't the only lawmaker under investigation. There are formal complaints against two Republican state senators. And last week, House leaders dismissed a complaint against Representative Paul Rosenthal, a Denver Democrat. Maya Regu is the director of workplace equality at the National Women's Law Center. She says resolutions to sexual harassment cases take
2: time. There does need to be a process. And it needs to be a fair process with consistently applied principles.
3: And she says part of that is a transparent timeline for any investigation. It gives clarity to whoever made the complaint and the accused.
2: And it also ensures that the process keeps moving forward and that it isn't delayed because someone just doesn't want to make a decision and is putting off trying to hold someone accountable.
3: Democratic House Majority Leader Casey Becker says that's not the case with Lebsock.
2: The investigation is ongoing. It will not be wrapped up before the start of the session. I hope it will be wrapped up within the next couple of weeks.
3: And that's good enough for Lebsock's main accuser, Representative Winter. She says any move to expel him should wait until the investigation concludes. And that means when the session gavels in, he'll be seated just a few feet from his accuser. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News.
0: When the Affordable Care Act launched in 2014, many states, including Colorado, expanded Medicaid, the insurance program for the poor. The impact here was dramatic, with hundreds of thousands of people getting coverage who hadn't had it. But what effect did it have on the hospitals that served those patients? CPR health reporter John Daly has dug into a new study from CU Anschutz researchers That seeks to answer that question. Hi, John. Hi, Ryan. And what is the top line?
5: Well, it turns out that the impact of the Medicaid expansion was dramatic for hospitals, too. It helped rural hospitals stay afloat in expansion states like Colorado. In fact, researchers at CU Anschutz found hospitals in states that expanded Medicaid were six times less likely to close than in non-expansion states. That's pretty dramatic. Their study was published yesterday in the journal Health Affairs.
0: Uh, Put this into some context. What did it mean for Colorado to expand that coverage in the first place?
5: Well, Colorado was one of 32 states to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. The state added 400,000 people to the program under the ACA. Colorado's uninsured rate was cut in half. The biggest group that got coverage were adults without children, Richard Lindruth is the lead author of the study. He says once those folks were covered, hospitals saw fewer uninsured admissions and increased Medicaid payments, and that helped their bottom line.
3: We found that really about half
0: of the closures that did occur in non-expansion states could have been averted through the expansion. So more Medicaid customers meant more paying customers. Um, How did they do this study?
5: Well, Lindrew says he and his colleagues hypothesized that hospitals and expansion states stood a better chance of remaining financially viable, so they examined national hospital data and local market conditions. They compared four years, 2008 through 2012, before the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion went into effect with years right after the launch of the ACA, 2015 and 16. And the results were noteworthy, especially for rural hospitals. Lindruth, that uh, CU researcher, says they often struggle the most to stay open, in part because they often have large numbers of uninsured adults. It's not as though uh, Medicaid's an extremely profitable
0: form of reimbursement, but it it is something on the margin. It certainly
3: helps the hospital's
5: cash flow. He said due to the Medicaid expansion, hospitals saw fewer uninsured admissions and more Medicaid admissions. So overall, their margins improved. Rural hospitals in non-expansion states just didn't have that advantage.
0: So, John, what are you hearing from rural health leaders in Colorado? Does this
5: uh, track with what they've seen on the ground? Absolutely. I spoke with Jason Kleckler. He's the CEO of Delta Memorial Hospital in Western Colorado, south of Grand Junction. His hospital was on a list of eight in Colorado in danger of shutting down. Kleckler says the Medicaid expansion clearly helped his hospital's finances. He compared the numbers in 2011 with 2016. After the expansion, the hospital's Medicaid population grew from 10 percent to 20 percent, and the hospital was left with reduced costs for uncompensated care, it saved the hospital more than $3 million.
3: I think that really speaks to what the researchers found. So Medicaid doubled, our bad debt decreased significantly, and the uninsured rate decreased significantly. It's pretty remarkable, And and I would venture to say that most hospitals, even ones with a lower percentage of Medicaid, have experienced a similar story.
5: Now, Kleckler did describe Medicaid coverage as a mixed bag for rural providers. Reimbursement rates can be paltry, he said. Mm -hmm. A hospital that pays $100 for a lab test may be reimbursed only $20 by Medicaid. And another problem is that many doctors and providers either won't accept or limit the number of Medicaid patients due to low reimbursement rates. Another rural health leader told me that an average of 30% to 50% of rural patients are covered by Medicaid. She says the population is generally older, sicker, and poorer than in urban communities. And the State Hospital Association said other factors like the strong economy have helped hospitals, but they say the importance of Medicaid expansion in our state cannot be understated.
0: I am speaking with CPR's health reporter John Daly. Um, John, we should note that the Medicaid expansion comes at a financial cost, of course, in the billions of dollars.
5: For sure. The Medicaid expansion here cost nearly $1.6 billion during its first two years, according to analysis by the Colorado Health Institute. That's a nonprofit independent health group. That sum was more expensive than anticipated because of higher than anticipated enrollment. Nearly all of Colorado's expansion costs were paid for by federal funds. And Medicaid is a significant portion of the Colorado state budget, and that budget is constrained by voter-approved tax limits. Colorado ranked 44th in the nation for per capita Medicaid spending. Uh, That's according to a report by the Kaiser Family Foundation.
0: Now, this is coming at a time that could inform the national debate with discussions in Congress about reforming Medicaid, uh, not to mention the ongoing debate over the future of Obamacare, the Affordable
5: Care Act. Indeed, the politics of this are always front and center. Many states that opted not to expand Medicaid are red states, and the move to enact the ACA and expand Medicaid was championed by Democrats and President Obama. So Medicaid and how to fund it is a key point of disagreement between the two parties Recent proposals from the Republican majority in Congress have suggested funding Medicaid through uh, what's called a block grant program. And under that concept, the federal government would provide each state with a set amount of money, capping total Medicaid spending. It would let states decide how to spend that money. But some healthcare and hospital advocates worry the change would likely lead to cuts over time. And, and rural counties are generally Republican country, and the hospitals in those counties could suffer the most if we see deep Medicaid cuts.
0: And, of course, rural hospitals are chronically under financial threat.
5: Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. The National Rural Health Association has identified nearly 700 hospitals nationally that are at risk of going under. That's a third of the nation's rural hospitals.
0: Well, thanks, John. You bet. John Daly covers the health beat here at CPR News. Now, the story of a wolf that became a legend and a pawn. Journalist Nate Blakesley chronicles the life of a wolf in the Rockies and the forces that shape her destiny, both natural and human forces. Blakesley's new book is American Wolf, a true story of survival and obsession in the West. It's set largely in Yellowstone National Park, but wolves could be reintroduced in Colorado soon. Blakesley is on the line from Austin. And, uh, Nate, welcome to the program.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
0: The book is very much a biography of 06 a wolf living in Yellowstone. She's named for the year she was born. Describe her for us.
4: Well, she was uh, an unusually attractive wolf. She had the uh, gray coloration, which is pretty common in Yellowstone, attractive facial markings. She was larger than usual for a female. She was about 105 pounds, uh, a very powerful hunter, unusually adept at taking down elk, which is their main prey in Yellowstone, uh, by herself. And that's sort of how she first got came to the attention of this small subculture of, of wolf-watching aficionados in the park. But really, the reason she became famous is that she was the easiest wolf to spot in the park at a time when social media was just exploding. And so more casual visitors to the park, just tourists, would happen to be in the right place, right time. They would see her. They would take some pictures, of video posted online, and her legend just sort of grew. Hmm.
0: And she was an alpha, right?
4: Right. That means that she was the breeding female in the pack. Every pack is basically a family. You have the breeding male and female, known as the alpha male and female. Um, and so she, the visitors were there and sort of saw this amazing adventure story that was her life uh, sort of from the very beginning. And it was a great story. She she left her natal pack, as all wolves have to do, in order to, to form a, a pack of their own and find a territory of their own. Um, and she embarked on this extended journey Territorial battle with this other alpha female who controlled this sort of the most desirable land in the park, known as the Lamar Valley, and and watchers were there observing as she sort of outwitted, outwitted and then later outfought this alpha female of this other pack, and all of this sort of took place um, in this wide open, relatively treeless valley where wolf watching has become this really popular pastime. And her story really was not that unusual. What was unusual about it was how thoroughly documented it was. Um, This this small group of watchers that would come to the park every day, follow the wolves using their radio tracking collars, and then watch them and in some cases take notes all day. And that's what allowed me to to write the book as I did, a sort of nonfiction book that reads like a novel, in which many of the main characters are wolves.
0: Indeed. It's not that the wolves keep the diary, it's that so many diaries are kept about them, and that gives you real insight into their days. You can see photos of O six posted at CPR.org and Uh, Why don't we have you read a passage from the book that gives us a glimpse into Osyk's pack, uh, including two male wolves known by their ID numbers as well?
4: Okay, yeah, this is a, a scene in which she has established her first litter, and the den happened to be perfectly visible from the campground road. And as you mentioned, the other two wolves you'll hear mentioned are her mate, 755, and his brother, 754. Situated high on the mountainside... The den had a clear view of the flats of Slough Creek far below, as well as the Lamar River where it exited Lamar Canyon, and, beyond, a long arm of Specimen Ridge. One morning, as the pups were playing on a fallen log, and 754 and 755 were bedded nearby, O6 walked to the center of the bowl and sat in a field of luxurious grass, surveying the mountainside that dropped away below her. Suddenly she threw her muzzle into the air and howled, The two males roused themselves and trotted to to her side to join in. The pups scampered over, confused and startled, looking everywhere for the danger that had prompted their mother to sound this alarm. But there was no danger. There was just warm sunshine and soft grass and the bounty of an enormous territory that belonged only to them. They tilted their tiny heads back and added their voices to the chorus.
0: Hmm. Um... It's so interesting to have a main character who's not human that you can't actually communicate with. Um does that does that make her to some extent unattainable? Uh maybe easier to to side with or fall in love with?
4: <laughs> well, it was certainly challenging as a journalist to to try to make her a character in a story, and that's partly what was so exciting to me about this story. Um the reason it was possible was very early on in the reporting. Um, A woman, a retired school teacher named Lori Lyman, who lives near the park and comes almost every day and takes notes every day, gave me this treasure trove of material... 2400 pages, three years worth of daily observations of 06 and her pack and I, and I read through it and I saw the outlines of this amazing adventure story um, and it was possible I hadn't realized this uh, at the time but it was possible to get to know individual wolves to get to know their personalities, their habits you know their their strengths and weaknesses uh, and to have them actually be characters with whom you can identify and and sympathize uh, in the story. And by the way, not every wolf in the story is sympathetic. You know, some of them have personalities that you don't sympathize with.
0: Mm. Well, some background here. Wild wolves were systematically exterminated and pretty much gone from the lower 48 by the 1920s. And in the mid-1990s, wildlife managers brought wild wolves from Canada and then reintroduced them into Yellowstone. 06 was a descendant of those wolves, uh, and indeed, you write that this was an amazing opportunity for wildlife researchers to observe wolf behavior among them is Rick McIntyre, who also keeps very fastidious field notes um, and what did you learn about the day in the life of a wolf because these notes give you a sense of of her kills, her fights for territory is it Is it an interesting? Is it a busy day?
4: (laughs) Well, if you're lucky, it is. You know, wolves, like your dogs, will tend to spend most of the day sleeping. And so the watcher's strategy is to get out there right before dawn, when the wolves are still active, um, and then watch them as much as they can until the wolves sort of bed down, and then watch them again in the evening when they become more active. But when they are awake, wolves spend most of their time running, That is sort of the defining characteristic of wolves. It's what makes them such stunning animals, such amazing predators, is their stamina. They will routinely run 20 miles in a day. You you watch them through these spotting scopes, these powerful telescopes. You never actually get that close to the wolves, but you can see them really well through these scopes. And it looks like they're just trotting. And then you look up and you see the size of the landscape that they're moving across. Routinely move 20 miles in a day. They can run 40 miles in a day if they need to. They spend most of that time either checking the boundaries of their territory. Every part of Yellowstone is held by one pack or another, and they're fiercely territorial. Or sort of taking inventory of the various herds of elk, which is their main prey in the park. And they will kill usually an elk every three or four days. Um, and that was something that had rarely been witnessed before reintroduction into Yellowstone. Um, but now it's something that's seen on a regular basis. And if you're lucky enough uh, as a visitor, you might see it yourself.
0: I want to be very clear that you do not write this book purely from the perspective of those who love and adore the wolves. Um, and, and we'll get to the debate over wolves and their reintroduction in just a bit. Uh, but i i have the sense that wolf advocates are really trying to paint the animal as not the big bag big bag wolf even though they engage in some pretty bad behavior as you document in the book
4: right well i think that you mentioned rick mcintyre he's sort of he works for the park service he's sort of the wolf guru there he's the one that helps visitors find wolves and tells them what they're seeing. He's this amazing font of wolf folklore in the park. And I think what he feels like he's working against is hundreds or actually thousands of years of sort of misinformation about wolves. Wolves have been so thoroughly demonized for so long, um, essentially as long as people have tried to raise livestock, because wolves were the main obstacle to all these early sort of pastoral civilizations that began to raise sheep, goat uh, and cattle. Wolves were once the most widely distributed land mammal on the planet, found almost everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. Oh, wow. And today, Homo sapiens is that most widely distributed animal, and it's no coincidence. Everywhere that human civilization has flourished, wolves have sort of been pushed to the margins. And as you mentioned earlier, in North America, almost entirely eliminated. They were once found all the way from the Arctic Circle down to Mexico City. Uh, By the late 19th century, you could find them pretty much only up in uh, the northern part of Michigan, upper Wisconsin, upper Minnesota. Everywhere else, they had been wiped out by fur trappers or by cattle ranchers protecting livestock. I want to
0: say that um – my words, bad behavior there uh, are probably out of line. A wolf behaves as a wolf behaves. It's, it's up to the outside folks to, to judge whether it's bad or good behavior. Not not up to me by any means. What effect, Nate, uh, did the reintroduction of wolves have on Yellowstone's ecosystem? This is an important question for Coloradans uh, because it's possible that there might be a, a reintroduction program here.
4: Yeah, well, the the... The reason wolves had to be brought back to Yellowstone is that the ecosystem was essentially broken. Even though Yellowstone is the crown jewel of of the national park system in the United States, uh, it was not a healthy ecosystem. Wolves had been gone – by the time they were brought back in the mid-90s, they had been gone for about 70 years. And the result was just this explosion in the elk population. Um, because there was no longer any predator around to keep them in check. Um, And the habitat began to degrade. And park rangers saw this as early as the 1940s. And what they were forced to do uh, was to cull the elk population. They would round up thousands of them, usually in the winter when there were a few visitors around, and and shoot them, basically replacing wolves with rifles. And the idea that bringing wolves back would be sort of a more holistic solution to that problem had been around for decades. But it was controversial, and they didn't get it done to the mid-'90s. Now, when they did finally get it done, it was an enormous success. Wolves spread throughout the park and then beyond the park's borders throughout much of their former range in the northern Rockies, and the effect you saw on the park was exactly as predicted. The elk population came down, and more importantly, elks started behaving more like wild animals. They stopped congregating in these river valleys where they were over browsing on willow and aspen and damaging the trout streams. And when the willow came back, you had food for the beavers who came back, which, of course, improves the riparian ecology. And then some more unexpected changes happened, too. There were far too many coyotes in the park because they had no canine competition. And when the wolves came back, the coyote population plummeted. And one of the things they saw as a result was a rebound in the pronghorn population because coyotes were eating a lot of baby pronghorns. Likewise, the rodent population bounced back without the coyotes, and so you saw all these more food for raptors like hawks and eagles, and there was this avian renaissance in the park that no one had anticipated or even knew they were missing. And so this cascade, biologists call it a trophic cascade of events uh, has been uh, of positive effects from wolf reintroduction, has been so thoroughly well documented now 20 years on that it's considered one of the great wildlife success stories of the 20th century.
0: Trophic. Related to food and the food chain. Um, Talk about the position, though, of the hunting community
4: and ranchers. Because as you say, this had effects beyond the park. Right. Well, I mentioned it was controversial. The reason it was, as you, you put your finger on it there, the ranchers, the descendants of those same ranchers who had hunted wolves out of the Northern Rockies, they're all still there, all still running cattle and sheep, in some cases on public land. They knew they stood to lose stock to wolves if wolves were brought back. And so they were very much opposed. And then secondly, the elk hunting uh, industry, it's big business in the Northern Rockies, Um, not just for guides and and outfitters, but also for hotels and restaurants that cater to out-of-town hunters. People will come from all around the country to hunt those elk and they hunt that that Yellowstone elk herd not while it's in the park of course but elk are migratory and in the winter they'll come down out of those high mountain ranges in the park into the valleys around and provide outstanding hunting and those that community knew that they would suffer if wolves came back because there would be fewer elk
0: did they suffer
4: well in some places yes um, the elk population came down as predicted. Of course, that was one of the goals of reintroduction. But if you didn't share that policy goal, you weren't likely to celebrate its success. And in, in some of those valleys immediately adjacent to the park, there are fewer elk and as a result, fewer outfitters. Now, on a statewide basis... The elk harvest, as they call it, the number that are shot by hunters every year in, in, for example, Wyoming, has been very robust. It has been near record levels in recent years. So the elk are still there. They're just not necessarily found in some of the same places they traditionally were. Have people lost money? Have they lost businesses? Some outfitters have and some ranchers have. But you have to keep the impact on ranching in perspective. For Wyoming, for example, uh, last year they lost 230 elk and sheep. To wolves now there 's over a million elk and sheep uh, i 'm sorry wolf, um, cattle and sheep in in the state of Wyoming, and just to put that number two hundred and thirty in perspective, tens of thousands are lost every year to bad weather to diseases um, now, if all of those calves had been lost on one ranch, obviously that would be a significant impact but The state of Wyoming has a compensation program. Ranchers are compensated seven times the value of any lost uh, calf or sheep if they can document that it came from wolves. So I think as uh, now 20 years on, I think ranchers are starting to learn to, to coexist with wolves, although in the hunting community, there's still a good deal of resentment.
0: Well, speaking of the hunting community, we have to talk about Stephen Turnbull, who is another captivating character in your book. Uh, not all the characters have, have four legs. Um, tell us about Stephen Turnbull and how he fits into the picture.
4: Well, the other story that the book tells, the sort of parallel narrative to O Six's sort of life story and struggle, is this fight over how wolves ought to be managed in the West. And it went on uh, for 20 years, and it did culminate finally in wolves being taken off the endangered species list and their management being returned to the various states around Yellowstone all of which eventually instituted hunting seasons for wolves. And during that very first hunting season in Wyoming, in generations, one of the very first wolves killed, sadly, was 06. She, like all the packs in the park, she briefly led her pack out of the park just for a short time. It's a common thing, although they, do, they spend most of their time in the park. And on one of those excursions happened to be during hunting season, and she was shot east of the park in this area known as Crandall. Now, nobody knew the identity of the hunter, Um, he wisely kept his name out of the papers or he would have been, you know, the, the Cecil, the lion dentist from Minnesota. Um, but Uh, that, but, that is to say, uh, the subject of scorn globally. Exactly. Because he, he shot her in one of the most remote places in the lower 48. And by the next day, 24 hours later, it was in the New York times. And then it was around the world, you know, world's most famous wolf shot near Yellowstone. Um, and for him, it was this unbelievably surreal experience to read about what he had done. Um, but by the time I caught up with him, which was about a year after this incident, he had changed his mind and he was ready to talk. Um, all he asked from me is that I protect his privacy by, by agreeing on a, a pseudonym, which we did, Stephen Turnbull, and that his story be be treated with respect and that he come across as sort of a, a three-dimensional character who had a perspective of his own. And that was important to me. I wouldn't want to tell the story you know, without having the perspective of someone who thought reintroduction was a bad idea.
0: How did Stephen Turnbull, again, this is uh, a changed name, how did he
4: feel about having killed such a famous animal? Well, when I f- first found him, and we talked in his cabin for about an hour, he was extremely defensive. He kept saying over and over again, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. And and from a legal perspective, he was right. Now, whether he had done something morally questionable, I think even he was a little bit on the fence about um, and that's what made it such an interesting interview, and that's what made him such an interesting character. He's not an anti wolf ideologue. He doesn't believe that all wolves should be removed from the landscape. But he does very much resent the fact that there are far fewer elk in Crandall where he lives than there used to be, or that his dad or granddad were used to, you know. From his perspective there weren't too many elk, there were just the right amount. And he is someone who really has built his life around hunting elk. It's what he does. He's like I said in the book, he's like a ski bum with a rifle instead of a snowboard um and so for him you know this was it was almost sacred to him and in his own way he is as obsessed with wildlife as someone like rick mcintyre is in the park and that's what made him such an interesting character and i I was so grateful that he agreed to participate in the book even though he knew of course that he would be the bad guy
0: what do colorado and other western states um do they
4: have a dog in this fight so to speak well, Colorado is is the next sort of likely place uh, to attempt a similar reintroduction effort. Wolves, of course, were once found all throughout Colorado as they were all throughout North America. They were all extir- extirpated by the end of the 19th century, just the same as they were up further north. Um, you have this huge expanse of, of public land in the western part of the state, which, of course, you would need if you were going to try this sort of landscape scale reintroduction. And you have an overabundance of elk and deer. So you have the sort of motive, the rationale for reintroducing. Now, whether or not you're going to have that same sort of political fight that we saw in the Northern Rockies, I guess remains to be seen. Having reintroduced wolves to
0: Yellowstone, I wonder if the animals have become too accustomed to people or cars, and
4: if that affects them when they leave the park, or I suppose when they're in the park. Yeah, well, I think that's a fair question. I there it's certainly the case that wolves that live in the Lamar Valley, which is that most popular area for wolf watching, have become tolerant of people. Now, that doesn't mean they, they approach people. They don't. But they view people, say, a, a quarter, half mile away as a, not a threat. And so when they leave the park – and this is the behavior that Turnbull described to me the day that he shot 06 – they are very naive about people and about hunting. Um, and so the question arises, is it fair chase, which is to say, is it ethical to hunt a wolf – that's tolerant of people um i think a lot of people would say no now the question becomes what is the policy solution to that do you do you create a buffer around the park during which no hunting in, is allowed and that's a would be a very controversial uh uh measure for congressman western congressman um and that's something i don't think we've quite come to terms with uh from a policy perspective
0: we have about a minute um when you met turnbull uh, at his cabin not too far from Yellowstone, he had O6's f- fur. Um, did you touch it? He did have
4: her pelt. I didn't pelt, expect that no. he would. Uh, he was fairly secretive when we first met. But after about an hour, he said, would you like to see it? And I didn't realize that he was referring to her pelt, but he went back in the back of his cabin and he brought it out. Um, and this is after I had spent a couple of months talking to people in the park about 06, about what they had seen her do, about her, this amazing adventure story that was her life. Very quickly um, her name. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I won't lie to you, it was upsetting. It was upsetting to see her sort of hanging on a tack on the side of his cabin. Um, and But that's what made this story so rich, I think, the fact that he and I were both looking at the same object and having these diametrically opposed reactions to it. Journalist
0: Nate Lakesley's new book is American Wolf, a true story of survival and obsession in the West. This is CPR News.